we have an opportunity um, as an industry to really step up and to really focus on becoming leaders. And this is what I, why I love working in cybersecurity is because the people who work in cybersecurity have a very, very deep connection with, I want to make the world a better place. Listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Marilise, welcome to the show. Now, it's really early because you are in the United Kingdom. It is 3 p.m. Sydney time and it is like 6 a.m. UK time. Now, you deserve a medal. I do get up early, but there's no way I would want to do an interview with me this early. So uh, really appreciate you getting up and giving us your time to talk about a topic that I think is really interesting. And I want to explore that a little bit more. But before we do that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So please walk us through where did you start and how did you get to doing what you're doing now? Good uh, morning. Good evening, KB. It's so wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And yes, I have a very, very strong coffee <laughs> um, that's got me going this morning. Uh, yeah, so I am Marilise uh, de Villiers-Basson. I have um, a company called Roar, um, and it's very much based on my personal story. And, uh, you know, so I've, I've been on a bit of a journey the last five years, um, and it was kick-started by a situation at work where I got to burnout. Um, I'm very careful to blame the bully because I think, you know, my burnout was very much, you know, a lot of the um, the bullying that happened at work, which was my boss. Um, I think I um, also had a big part to play in that. And that's the thing I learned over the years. But of course, at the time when you're in a situation, it's really, really quite hard to make sense of it all. So yeah, I stepped away from a 20... 20-year corporate career uh, about five years ago, um, mainly because I was on my knees and I, I was having career success, but I was completely burnt out. I was completely sacrificing my health and my relationships um, with the people I love the most. And um, I realized that enough is enough. And I decided to step away and start my own thing. And I think, you know, over the last few years have realized and reconnected with my passion, which is to help people grow and be successful in a holistic sense. So redefining what a successful life means to them. Um, and, and yes, I work in the cybersecurity industry. So I've been in the industry for a decade now. I am a behavioral change expert and um, I work with companies to help them to design multi-year sort of strategies where they can actually um, embed secure mindsets and habits in their organizational culture. So this is not just about a tick box awareness exercise. This is all about um, really tangible behavioral change and um, embedding that culture where we become a cyber resilient organization, where people become our strongest defense. Wow. Uh, I really like that you're honest there and saying that you're on your knees and you you were sick of it. You did something for yourself. So good on you. Uh, it's not easy to do that, especially if you go against the grain of what other people think that you should be doing. So I applaud you for that. One of the things that was interesting that you said is redefining what a successful life looks like. 
Now, I want to understand from your perspective with the people that you've spoken to, what do people often say? So people, you know, maybe when you're younger, it's like, oh, it's all about the money and the car. But then like as you get older in life, it's about my children and it's about my husband or my wife. So I'm just curious to know what do people usually say or how do they answer when you ask them that question? So I think it is a very one-dimensional answer. And I think what is interesting is people people think about life and different different parts of your life as as or. I always say it's not an or conversation, it's an and conversation. So it's your career and your health and your relationships and your time and money freedom. So that's sort of the four um, categories that I think about in terms of my successful life. And it's about making my whole life work and becoming my whole self. So the conversation with people is very much always about um, there's these trade-offs going on. So it's like I can have one thing, but I can't have the other thing. And it's um, it's 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 saying, you know, obviously I've spent I spent so much of my time, for example, at work. Um, and I don't have time to get to the gym. I don't have time to do that. Or I will do X when something else happens. So there's always a condition. There's an if, there's a but, there's a when. And so people people have a very, um, like a, a trade off almost conversation going on in their heads. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so what I'm, what I'm hearing from what you're saying is, for example, as an entrepreneur, it's like, uh, that that's the trade-off. So it's like you can't do the family thing. It's like entrepreneur, they don't have time for anything else. It's that all sort of predicament that we often find ourselves in. So how do you, as an individual or executives listening to the show or even just anyone, how do you move yourself from it's the it's the end rather than the or? How, how do you sort of move past that whole you can have both? Because, I mean, there's so many of these I don't know, phrases out there saying you can't have it all. You know, if you want a career, then your family life suffers. If you want a family life, your career suffers. How does that all look? And then how do we arrive at that place where you can have the and rather than the or? So I think this is where people have to realize. I always say it's an inside job. (laughs) So it doesn't happen from the outside in. It doesn't happen when um when external things and things in your external environment change it happens when you when you look inside so i always say to people the moment that i held the mirror up and i got brutally honest with myself about my situation and how much my success my career success was costing me in my health and my personal relationships um that was that was kind of my pivotal moment when i realized you know i can't carry on like that so i i looked inside and i i realized that you know i have a tremendous power inside me um that i've that i've not tapped into because i think when you when you grow up and you conditioned by society to really look for validation in the outside world and of course what we see in the outside world is not always the truth you know a lot of it is lies and and so for me it was very much realizing that i had to hold the mirror up i had to get really brutally honest with myself and i had to really connect with that fire in my belly, that thing that that I'm so passionate about, the purpose of my life. Because I think at the end of the day, if you don't have that anchor, it's easy to then use external 
um, cues and external messages and external um, situations to actually validate your existence and justify your existence on this planet. So I think it's very much, as I said, an inside job. That's so true. Justifying your existence. Uh, it's something that I probably suffered with when I was younger. I mean, I mean, I mean, a human being, like every now and again, it's like, you know, justifying my existence on the earth. So I get that. Uh, and that's hard. And some people, unfortunately, never get there or they arrive at their very late in life. And there's something that I've learned from people, uh, you know, that I know or friends of mine that are even in their 60s who are like the best humans on the earth. They're just like, I wish I learned what I'm telling you or what you know now younger. Um, so yeah, I definitely, there's a lot in that when you, when you speak about that. So I appreciate you sharing that. So one of the things I want to zoom in now is focusing on your area of expertise. And that's really that coaching executive in the cyberspace. Now, this is interesting because cybersecurity people are, are interesting. Um, they're very, they're wired differently. Um, they think on a different level. And one of the things that you sort of mentioned when we spoke originally was that there's this inner and outer game as a leader. But so what do you mean by this when you say this? So, yeah, so for me, um, when I think about um, my life holistically, as I said to you earlier, it's about making my whole life work. You know, there is connecting with your purpose, with your authentic purpose. We all have a we all have a unique um, reason for being and um, you know so I am very much like nobody has your story and your story and your message matters so it's tapping again into that inside connection with you know what gives you that fire in your belly so that's kind of where it all starts right but then it's about winning the inner game and winning the outer game so the inner game is your thoughts and your feelings um, that sort of come from your beliefs so you know whether you have limiting beliefs um, we work a lot with you to kind of take those limiting beliefs and turn them into empowering beliefs and really tapping into that you know power that you have inside of you so winning your inner game developing that winning mindset that that helps you to show up every day as that executive leader that really um, bring your best self and then of course the outer game is your words and your actions is what you say and what you do and and that's that's so crucially important because we can we can have an amazing mindset but at the end of the day things happen when you take the right action and when your words and your actions are completely aligned and you know that you don't say one thing but you do something else and, and I think that's important because often as a leader people people watch you with you know with such a uh, sharp eye eagle eye I should say every single day and um People people really reconcile what you say and what you do all the time. So you've got to be, as a leader, very conscious and cognizant of the fact that you know you are being watched, and you've got to you've got to just really think about that alignment. So the people that you've spoken to or coached, what are the common limiting beliefs that you often hear? And is there any sort of like, do you sort of hear the same ones or is it very, very different? I'm just curious to know. 
So I think it's the big one that jumps out and it's very much in our industry, um, very prominent in our industry is this, um, I mean, the label people use for it is kind of this imposter syndrome, you know, where you're incredibly capable at what you do. You're so qualified, but you have this feeling of I'm not enough. I am not worthy. You know, someone's going to catch me out, not, not knowing everything. So it's that sort of desire that people have to know it all, to be the, I, um, my friend um, wrote a book, uh, Christian uh, wrote a book about this, the smartest person in the room. So that desire that we have as cybersecurity professionals to want to be the smartest person in the room. And it stems from that deep insecurity that we feel, that limiting kind of feeling that we have that we're not enough. Yeah, that's so true. Okay, so let's let's get into this because uh, I know what that feels like, the imposter syndrome. And then I also think that there are many people in this space, like the cyberspace specifically, that think the same. But then to your point around being the smartest person in the room, I often have found in my career that there could be someone sitting opposite you that just will spend their whole, like, I don't know, life trying to be smarter than everyone else. And then it's like, I don't know if anyone A, notices, B, cares. So I'm curious to know, like, where does that come from? Because everyone is smart in different ways. And so to me, it comes across a little bit of naivety, like, okay, you may be the most super technical nth degree dude that's like, you know, out of this world crazy on another level. But then you've got this person sitting right beside you that has really strong relationships and influence and strong communication skills, but you're sort of maybe doubting that person because there's a little bit of that in there. I've also seen people online that will be like, oh, you can't speak about that. You don't have 20 years of experience. So I kind of feel like maybe we're breeding a bit of this culture. KB, that is so true. And um, I think for me personally, as someone who comes from a a non-technical, non-cybersecurity background. So I've sort of transitioned into cybersecurity from a, my background is in finance. So I'm, my formal training is in um, in accounting. So I trained as a chartered accountant. And initially for the first half of my career was very much working in the finance space and de- delivering finance transformations and then pivoted into cybersecurity about 10 years ago. And I've had this niggling feeling um, for the first few years about this fact that I'm not technical enough. And I don't think it was just me being insecure. A lot of it was me being insecure, but a lot of it was also, you're right, as, as an industry, we're very quick to dismiss people if they don't have all those certifications and all those qualifications and that credibility um, behind their names. Um, so it's very much focusing on how technical you are and not necessarily on how how well of a communicator and an influencer you are. And that's really why um, I do what I do is because I really want people to help to realize that in, you know, influence and, and, and persuasion and communication skills are so critical if we want to move um, our industry from this sort of very technical industry with, to an industry that's at the boardroom table, that has that seat at the table, that actually helps the business make better, more secure decisions every day. 
So, so KB, I just want to pick up on your question specifically around um, wanting to be the smartest person in the room and that sort of whole, um, where does it come from? Because that was your original kind of question around, I, I have to prove that I'm the, I'm, I'm the smartest person in the room. I think it actually, and this is, this is something I pick up in my book, um, I talk about the narcissism spectrum scale and I talk about how, you know, um, we have obviously got neurodiversity in our industry, so that's that that plays a big part in 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 the way we communicate and interact. And I think it's something we have to embrace more. I also think there's something about when that insecurity that you have deep inside of you becomes toxic, then you can become narcissistic. And so I think there is something also about that that in that that narcissistic um, ego. Um, that's that sort of that you see that we see sometimes is actually really coming from a person that is deeply, deeply insecure inside. Wow, uh, that's a very interesting observation. Uh, maybe I'm so entrenched in our industry, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Do you believe we have more of these? I want to be the smartest person in the room type of vibe slash narcissistic people than other industries, or? Is it that I'm just so immersed in this that I can't see any other industry for what it is? Because I do see that a lot, uh, even, you know, consulting or like working uh, on the client side historically, there was a lot of that going on and it was just like so much flexing and it's like it became more about flexing than it did about the actual problem that was solving. And then I do see it online then as well. So I'm just really interested in how this all fits together? I don't think it's specific to cybersecurity. I think it's everywhere. And we see it in society. We see it in politics. We see it in big corporations. You know, I, I honestly don't think it's only cybersecurity. I think um, we, um, we have to address these problems head on, regardless. I think um, from a, from a, organizational perspective and from you know doing the right thing and making the world a better place to live in I think you know this is something that is everywhere there's pockets of it everywhere so I, I by no means want to make and label cybersecurity as as an industry that has a bigger problem than other industries I don't necessarily think so I just think that we have an opportunity um, as an industry to really step up and to really focus on becoming leaders um, in the world. Because really, what what I see and and this is what I, why I love working in cybersecurity is because the people who work in cybersecurity have a very very deep connection with. I want to make the world a better place. I want to make the world more secure. That's the reason, that's the why we do what we do. So from a from an authentic purpose perspective, we have such a, a an, an important reason for being, you know, showing up every day to make the world a bit, a bit, a bit safer every day. Well, uh, I agree. I think that's it's a great observation. Uh, and I think that that is one plus of working in this space. I mean, I've worked in other industries before. I mean, not as long as this one, of course, but there's definitely that common goal amongst people, even if they don't get along or I'm more technical than you or whatever it is, there is still that undercurrent of we are uh, working in, in unity, even if it doesn't look like it. So 
The next thing that I want to explore, I mean, just, well, I guess even pressing on your point a little bit, one of the things that was coming up on my mind as you were speaking around, I'm the smartest person in the room. When I was younger, I worked for a company and a lot of people kept asking me where I went to university. And my response was, I didn't go to university. And then I think people were taken aback by that because everyone else had, but it kind of it was like, okay, yes, they can ask me to be curious, but then it's like, what are you trying to prove that you're smarter than me because you went to university? Maybe, but maybe not. Um, and so then it leads back into the example around people saying, well, how technical are you? Like, I just think it's a bit of a moot point. Uh, and what are they trying to ascertain by asking that question? Because does it A, matter? B, who cares? And what is the ulterior motive for asking that question? I think, um, you know, I think many times there is no ulterior, ulterior motive. Maybe maybe it's just because that's just how we, we grew up. It's how we were conditioned. You know, the kind of the natural step after school is to go into some sort of tertiary education. That is completely changing now. The world is completely changing. So... Um, when someone asks that question, I think, you know, if you give that person the benefit of the doubt, they're probably just trying to make a conversation with you. Um, if it is a, if there is a malicious intent in that question, it's probably because that person, you know, um, you know, feels again that the actual qualification is is important and they need to feel some sense of validation about themselves so it's kind of they have something to compare themselves to um but i think you know this is almost like a topic on its own because the whole conversation about um going to university i mean i went to university and um it it usually benefited me but i'm in a place now where i've got two teenage sons where i'm like i don't know if i want them to go to university because the world has changed completely and you know more than 50 percent of the jobs that that our children are going to do one day are not even they don't even exist yet and I'm thinking you need to experience life you need to develop life skills and um, this whole new industry um, of self-education that's popping up you know it's just it's a massive industry it's um I think it's coming up to be a trillion dollar industry by 2028 right so Self-education is becoming the new norm and it's becoming, you know, people are becoming a lot more credible and valued for what they know in terms of their personal experience and the skills that you've built up over the years based on your your, your unique experiences. So would you say that if we look at that example and we flip it on its head and, and look at it from the example from our industry about being technical perhaps is a way of validating perhaps someone's self or their ego or their expertise and then much to, you know, and someone asking me, I mean, this is as an example, whether it's a case, it may or may not be, it's just an example of the quali- the qualification of the uni or college degree. And it's like that's then that person who's asking me validating themselves to be like, okay, well, I have a uni degree, so therefore I'm validated. And so would you say that people asking other people if they're super technical or like whatever it is, that's their sort of sense of worth and then they're sort of using perhaps the next person that they're asking that question to as a barometer to then assess their own self-worth? I think you got that spot on. I think that's spot on. And I think it comes back to um, 
I, I think the majority of people do not have any malicious intent in asking that question. But let's say we, we talk about the outlier and the person that does have that. And I say malicious intent because it's, it's, it, it comes across to you and me as, as a little bit of a sort of, you know, <laughs> you know, this person's a bit, bit of being a bit of a jerk, right? But actually, it comes back to my earlier point that it is actually coming from a, a sense of real deep insecurity. So uh, that sense of validation that they need and, and the mentality. And I think this is something really important. Um, when you are dealing with people where you get that niggling feeling that this person has an ulterior motive, it's often because people have this winner versus loser mentality. So it's, it's, it's always a competition in their minds. So it's like, I have to be the winner and you have to be the loser. So I have to prove that I'm better than you. And I think that's that's when when you when you talk about that person that's asking that question, not necessarily from a from a from a sincere place. That's the mindset that's going on for them. I'm a winner, you're a loser, and I'm in competition with you, and I have to prove. When it's a when it's a very toxic person, that person will have to prove at all costs that they are the winner and you are the loser. So that's what happened to me when I was working with the bully. Um, there was very much this, he had to prove at all costs that he was the winner and had to prove every single time that, you know, I'm I'm the loser. And I think that when it becomes really, really toxic, that that's the extreme end of the scale. But I think in the majority of cases, um, I think genuinely it is kind of just a conversation starter and just a point to kind of, you know, get to know someone and a little bit about their background better. Well, uh, that is very um, true. Uh, I have seen that. And I, I do get your point. Like, yes, it's a conversation starter, but I also think it's, some of the time it does go beyond that. Now, I'm not just saying my own e example. I'm looking at for other people, what other people have told me, things I see online as well that I've observed. Would you say that people saying that, because I just find it's really interesting, um, and I've spoken to a number of people on the show about this, um, th this being I'm more technical or not technical sort of conversation. So I'm always keen to really explore this in detail. Would you say it's conscious or subconscious that people are thinking, well, I'm better than you because I'm more technical? Or do you think that they're not really thinking about it or they're just so conditioned to, like you were saying, there's being, being that winner because they are the most technical dude on the earth, that that is just a normal thing for them to A, ask, but then B, to say, well, I've won regardless. Do you know, this is such a, um, it's a difficult question. You can't really generalize. Um, but I think if I would have to say in the majority of cases, I don't think there is actually an awareness. It, it's almost like we are so conditioned in, in our industry to to be technical um, that I think people, people just don't even think about it um, m most of the times. Um, they... They don't actually, they're not actually aware necessarily of the impact that they have on others. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's something which really for me, I think is, is, is part of the work that I do. It's very much about helping people have better of awareness of the impact that they have on other people and having better awareness of your, you know, the assumptions that you make, um, the the way that you um, perceive things, the way that you think about things. So I always, I use this phrase, like always notice what you're noticing. So you, you know, you have a body, 
you're not your body. Um, you have a brain, you have a mind, you're not your mind. So it's using that and controlling that and being aware and noticing what you're noticing about your thoughts and about your feelings um, and, and, and really tapping into being aware of your impact on other people as well. So if we move on to like a leadership perspective and just following the same theme. Now, there are some leaders in the space that are put all emphasis on being technical and others who don't. What potentially could be the downfall if you're a leader and you're putting all of your emphasis on your team being technical? What sort of culture does that breed? And the sort of the the example I'm going to use is, I don't know, it just reminds me of one of those like Hollywood movies and it's got that, that family that they're all into playing sports and playing soccer together and then they've got the third kid that's the outlier that likes chess and they just can't deal that the kid likes chess so I think that it's the same sort of thing that I'm thinking about it's like you've got this one leader that's like okay everyone has to be really technical but then you probably got pockets of people in your team that aren't and then they're just like these pariahs and perhaps it's you know, it may not generate a great culture if it is being led at the top, that being technical is all that that matters. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what does this potentially create long-term for people? So I think it's um, it's very um, important that um, we realise that we do need that very deep technical expertise. Um, the problem is, I have seen is that we've we've been so focused on technical um, in our industry. So um, as as a behavioural change and uh, someone who uh, focuses on the people people aspects of cybersecurity, I'm very um, aware of this always because you look at you know cybersecurity budgets and you think, oh my gosh, you know they spend all this money on the technology, and at the end of the day. You know, people people have to become our strongest defense. You know, the majority of incidents happen because of a human, you know, making a mistake or, um, you know, um, being malicious or negligent. You know, so I think at the end of the day, um, I think the industry is rebalancing and I think cyber leaders are beginning to really recognize that balance and, and, and the importance of having the non-technical and the technical balance. I think we've got work to do. The industry is still um, growing up in that regard. And I think as the role of cybersecurity professionals change and as we become more and more um, at the forefront of business decisions and in the business, I think we're becoming more business partners. We're becoming more advisors to the business. Um, it's not that sort of technical back office role anymore. It's just too strategically important for organizations. We're going to have to adapt our skill sets accordingly me why would you say so you said before that we've forgotten about the people side of it the communication side of it why did we do that I think there was a very big ignorance around um, you know we can automate everything we can implement a technology and it will automate out the human human error um, I think it was mainly an ignorance it, it wasn't something that we we necessarily I think it is a case of we, we were thinking about solutions um, as, as technical solutions and and automation. And, and now, as an industry, we're realizing that actually, you know what, at the end of the day, this is a lot more com- complex. And we're always going to have the people elements and um, we're going to have to flip, flip over to really think about um, how do we 
influence um, people's mindsets and habits so that they take this seriously um, and they help us, they become our sort of strongest defense in this. Yeah, that's a good point. Would you say that now, because of that that ignorance, which I agree with, that now we're trying to almost correct perhaps that error in judgment of, okay, yeah, we could have potentially automated this, kind of figured out we can't. Now we're sort of trying to go back through the paces and focus on the communication and the people side of it. I think it's um, it's always um, it, it it depends. Um, so every organisation is at is at different stages of maturity, right? So um, it's just a natural journey. Every every organisation goes through um, obviously um, different different ways and different orders of implementing things. It's it's not the same um, any anywhere. But what what is important, I think, is that. Um, you know, once you've reached a certain level of maturity, you re- recognize that, you know, the people just become more and more and more important. And so from a culture perspective, you cannot ever stop focusing on um, on, on, on educating people, on engaging people, on influencing behavior. So at the end of the day, I think the organizations that are Many organizations are course correcting because they're now reaching a level of maturity where they're realizing actually, you know what, we've got to put more of an emphasis on our people. And then, of course, when you when you focus on behavioral change, this is not a program that ever stops. This is continuous reinforcement, little and often over years and years. So recognizing that you can't just tick a box and this is not something you can just fix one time. It it's 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 a culture that you've got to embed and this 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 takes forever. It never stops. Yeah, most definitely. So to switch gears for the next part of the interview is to focus on the leadership side of things and really sort of drill into your area of expertise. And one of the sort of questions I wanted to ask you was about high level strategies on how leaders can navigate difficult conversations. Now, before you and I jumped on the school, I was talking you through a bit of a difficult conversation I had to have, uh, which wasn't, wasn't easy. So I'm curious to know, because look, I like to think that people don't like having difficult conversations. I may be wrong, but it is hard. I think sometimes if you look back retrospectively, you could handle things a little bit better or you, you know, you thought you did quite well on handling that. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from your point of view, how can people navigate this? Now I have found as well for cyber people, it's probably a little harder for them because, you know, many people say like, I'm not a people's person or I struggle to communicate or I don't come across as strong as I'd like to. So I think this question is really, really important to ask for people that perhaps are listening to this that are like, wow, I need to start implementing the things that Marilise is saying today. Absolutely. And and this is this is my absolute passion is um, I'm always encouraging people to have the courage to speak their truth and to have the courageous conversation, have the difficult conversation. And my whole my whole method, my whole brand is built on a process which is helping you to navigate that difficult conversation. So ROAR is actually a four-step process for navigating a difficult conversation. It stands for recognize, observe, assert, 
and redirect. Now, I think before you go into a conversation, I think it's important to think about the mindset that you've got to have. So for a moment, let's imagine you're actually approaching a person and it's a difficult person. Right, so the first the first thing that you've got to really think about is what is your mindset going into that conversation? How are you feeling about that person? Are you making any assumptions about that person? Now, the mindset that I'm always um, promoting is, um, it's called, I'm okay and you're okay. So it's an I'm okay, you're okay mindset. And what that means is that you have positive regard for the other person. So you try and go into that conversation neutral and you try and put your sort of assumptions and feelings about the person aside. You have positive regard for that person. But most importantly, you have positive regard for yourself as well. Because often when we go into conversations, we talked about people that are insecure. And and sometimes when you don't feel okay about yourself, you show up differently in that conversation. So you're either going to play really small or you're going to become quite quite nasty um, as well. So it depends on how you feel about yourself. Again, you know, deep down. So I'm okay, you're okay. That's really an important mindset. And I think what you've got to also, the mind, the other mindset that you've got to really have is that you're going into that conversation to learn, to not necessarily just state your point. Yes, you want to state your point. You want to put your position out there. Um, that's what the assert part is all about. But you're actually going in to learn more about the other person's perspective. So you have your perspective, the other person have their perspective, and there's also different other perspectives. There's perhaps a third perspective. So when you go into that conversation, you want to learn. Always remember you want to learn. And that's where you switch from speaking at people or or just saying things and making statements to actually asking questions so i'm always curious you know about asking asking questions and and i think when when it is a difficult person you know if that person's reaction kind of gets your back up <laughs> it's easy for you then to attack back but if you're able to stay calm and stay present and breathe <laughs> so recognize and observe is all about that so recognizing the other person's behavior observing staying present listening actively um, to what they're saying that will then give you the ability to then assert and um, redirect so the assert response is very much about you're responding you're not reacting there's a difference between responding and reacting. So you want to respond calm and you want to actually really um, understand, again, where that person's coming from. So questions um, is, is really, really important. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's a great uh, framework that you developed. Uh, it's a lot easier said than done, I'm assuming. Of course, and it takes practice. It takes a hell of a lot of practice. It's like sounds so easy, right? But then it's like, well, actually, when you're in that moment, you get very heated and there's emotion and yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and this is why it's um, it's lifelong learning. You know, we can always, as you said earlier, um, you can always do something different and something better. I think the most important thing is that you learn from it. Um, because I always say there's no such thing as failure. Failure is feedback and it's important to... Um, to recognize that every experience that we have, we can learn something from it. 
So as an example, if I'm going into a meeting and I know the person's difficult, do you think as human beings we naturally start to, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, to, to say, okay, well, I've got to go and speak to Annalise and I've got to ask her something and I start to piece together what I think you're going to say based on preconceived notions, assumptions that I have about you, uh, also uh, historical data that I have on you and how you reacted in the past perhaps. Do you think that we often do that? And if we do that, does that then mean we're already starting off the, the raw framework on the wrong foot? And if so, how do we recalibrate that? 100% yes is the first answer. Um, so I think I come back to this, um, the recalibration happens inside. Remember I said right at the beginning, this is an inside job. Um, so the recalibration, when you notice what you're noticing. So when those... When those thoughts come up, so, oh, gosh, I've got to speak to Marilise. I hope she's in a good mood today. Um, I can't bear to have a conversation with her because she's actually, you know, I don't know if she's going to be, like, shouting at me or whether she's actually going to be really, really nice and really friendly. Um, you go through all those thoughts, and by the time you're in that conversation, you're already so worked up, right? But if you can pattern interrupt which means is if you notice what you're noticing and you realize, oh my gosh, my thoughts, this is what I'm thinking. But actually, um, and the way that I normally do that is I challenge myself. I ask myself, is that the truth? Is that the truth about that person? Now, it might feel really true to you. Like you, based on your experiences with me, you might know that I'm a very, um, you know, person that one day I'm, I'm I'm friendly, the next day I'm like a tyrant, you know. But um, I, I, I would encourage you and welcome you to really recognize, is that the truth? Or ask, is that the truth? And to actually notice that actually your feelings about that person isn't necessarily the truth it's just your perspective of of that person and if you can go into that conversation again with that I'm okay you're okay mindset and approaching it as a learning conversation you you have a much much better chance at having a productive conversation so when you say is this the truth is that before you get into the conversation or you're midway through conversation, you're nervous, you're anxious, then you start to have that awareness to say, is this the truth about these preconceived notions about this person? When is that part where you start to have this inner dialogue with yourself? So I think it's, I think the inner dialogue happens all the time. What I was describing to you earlier was more beforehand. So when you think about before you go into that conversation and you're nervous about the conversation because you're not, not sure how I'm going to react and you make a, an assumption about me as a, as a person, um, it might feel like the truth because it might feel very, very real based on your experience with me. But that is, and this is where the honesty with yourself comes up, right? You've got to hold that mirror up and be honest with yourself because it might, that feeling about me might be coming up because of your own insecurities. And that's where I'm saying, if you allow yourself just for a moment to say, that's not necessarily true about Marilise, that's just the way I've interpreted it. And if you allow yourself for a moment to open your mind to a more neutral conversation and to, to put aside your judgments about me, you will be able to have a much more clear head going into that conversation and you will be able to actually 
um, think more clearly, observe more clearly, listen more more actively, and you 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 might be able to engage in a very different way and respond in a very different way. Wow, yeah, this gets really interesting. Now, just to go a layer deep deeper than that. Uh, so, okay, I'm going into the meeting with you, and then I go, "Is this the truth?" But then my ego goes, "Yes, Marilise is awful, and she's mean," and I start having these preconceived notions because it's my ego talking. Now, you can appreciate this what Eckhart Tolle goes on about, which is how then do you know the truth? It's your ego talking off it's not your ego talk how do you have that level of understanding about yourself because it's like straight away our ego is going to come out and say yes is the truth like it's hard to get beyond that part where it's like actually no it's not the truth how do you sort of check yourself on that and I think this is this is where I think um, I said it earlier. It's lifelong learning. <laughs> um, I think every day for all of us, there's points in the day where the ego gets in the way. I think it's just human nature. We're human beings, but it is about how aware you are about you know what you think and what you feel and what you say and what you do so it comes right back full circle to winning the inner game and winning the outer game and recognizing that there are going to be times that you're going to get it wrong but it's important that you learn from it and that you keep checking in right so um KB, I think it's, I mean, this is such a beautiful question you're asking. I also think it's such a difficult question to answer because I think it is just, um, you know, acknowledging that we will make mistakes and, you know, we will react, you know, we react and we fight with the people closest to us, the people that we love the most. And I sometimes think, you know, why do we do that? I'm, I'm a very aware, very, you know, conscious person and I still do it. We're just human beings. We get, life gets in the way, we get tired, you know, and I think it's a, at the end of the day to, to be kind to yourself as well and don't beat yourself up about it when you do get it wrong. Um, but to learn from it is, is most important. Yeah, you're so true. And I think like, yes, it is a difficult question to ask because everyone's different. Uh, some people might not even have this awareness. Would you say the other thing is as well, I remember a psychologist saying to me years ago, like sometimes if, you, if, if you've got your mind made up about someone, so hypothetically, I don't like you. So any little thing that you do, I'm just going to see red with you. Do you think that's a very real thing as well? Uh, because it's like, I already know, I've made my mind up any little thing that you do. Now, if you, if you zoom out, you may not be doing the, you actually may not be doing like the right thing or the wrong thing, but does it matter? Because I've made up my decision about you, I'm just going to see red. Do you think there's a lot of that that comes into it as well? Absolutely. I think it sometimes it's just, you know, you have to, you have to recognize where you are with, with a person. And um, sometimes you've just got to, I guess agree to disagree, or even if you if you're not interacting with someone, just to um, kind of let that person go, you know. Because I think often if 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 we don't get on with people, I think sometimes we try so hard to get on with people, and I'm like, no, you know, you don't have to. We're 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 all different different beings, and so you know we can't be friends with everybody, and we are, we are, we are going to have clashes. Um, and, and if you, you know, sometimes it's, it's okay to move on <laughs> from a friendship, from a relationship, because it has to be reciprocal. You've got to find a way to make, make that beautiful dance work in a relationship, in any kind of relationship. You speak about becoming a trusted security advisor. Now, 
there's this word that gets thrown around the industry, like building trust. I mean, I use it myself, so I'm not sort of like saying it's uh, any negative connotation towards it. It's just more so how does one become a trusted advisor? Like what would be the steps that you'd take personally to become this, to become that function? Uh, Because trust, I think, is very hard to define and it's not necessarily like tangible sort of outcomes that you can attach to it, so to speak. So I think it's one of those mysterious sort of boxes that we open to become trust a trustworthy person. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Fantastic, because there is actually, there, there is something called the trust equation. <laughs> um, there is a book uh, that's been written many, many years ago called The Trusted Advisor. And um, I've read that one. Yes. So the formula in that is that trust equals credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-orientation. So if you take credibility, we talked about being technical (laughs) earlier. So by way of your qualifications and your certifications and you being in a role that you qualify to do, you are credible, right? You build trust through reliability when you're actually showing up on time. You're delivering what you said you will deliver by by the time you said that it's by the deadline, for example. The third one, intimacy. I think this is where um, where people struggle the most because that intimacy factor is about your ability to, to build deep personal relationships professional relationships with people and I think that that part in the intimacy part is really where um, people 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 have to be courageous to show up and be more vulnerable as well you know so Brene Brown is famous for her her research on shame and that she always says that you know courage and vulnerability are two sides of the same coin so you've got to be in order to be courageous you've got to be vulnerable so the intimacy point is all about how do you develop deep personal connections and relationships with people. And then, of course, the divided by (laughs) self-orientation is the more self-orientated you are as an individual, the more it's going to detract from that trust that you can build with people. So I always go back to that because it's such a beautiful, helpful framework for me to think about where, where can I improve my trustworthiness with a particular individual, you know, and I think... It's that, again, it's that dance between building that intimate relationship and not being selfish or being so self-orientated, but having that sort of positive regard still for yourself. So it's that reciprocal relationship. I, I'm okay, you're okay. It comes back to that, I'm okay, you're okay. And I guess trust takes time to build up, right? So I think that, do you think maybe people just assume that I don't know, if I work at this company, I'm going to have the trust or if I get fired from that company, I'm not going to have any trust. So do you think that people sort of just assume that it's an easier thing to gain and definitely an easy thing to lose, but perhaps they don't look at it holistically and think that like all, all those steps that you just mentioned in that equation, like that, that's not necessarily like got a time limit on it either, right? It could take 10 years. It could take a lot less than that. But it's just not something where, okay, we're just going to go outside now and it's going to purchase it from a store and we've got trust. Like it's, as I mentioned before, it is a little bit mysterious in the sense of, well, 
what does that time frame look like? I think it does take a number of years, um, but it's also exercising that trust muscle. It's not just, oh, okay, well, I'm now trustworthy, but you got to maintain that level of trust too, right? I love that exercising that trust muscle and I think you're right you can it can take years to build up someone's trust it can take seconds to destroy it you know so it's um, definitely uh, relationship based it takes time and I think what makes it really difficult in our current climate is that we have this sort of attitude of instant gratification and we think you know that we um we just want to see the results now and we want to trust now and everything has to be now, now, now. And so um, yeah, I think it's so you, 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 you make such a valid point. It's just years and years of um, building relationships. I mean, and I've seen it in my business, you know, I've built relationships with people where, you know, initially you think, oh my gosh, we're going to be doing some stuff together. And then years pass, but you stay in touch and you continue building the relationship. And then when the time is right, things happen, right? But it's not conditional. It's not like I'm only going to be building a relationship with you because you can help me. It's about connecting with people again at that deeper, deeper level. And to to recognize when you meet people where your values are aligned and um, you, you can walk along long road with with someone yeah you're so true yes it's not instantaneous and I think that you're you're right we are breeding this culture of getting everything now uh and I think that that's probably where I was going with my point before so you you've uh you've hit the nail on the head when you say that and then I also think uh as well that with trust I think that it's not as clinical perhaps uh, as people may look at it. It's not like you said before. It's not like just building a relationship with someone to get something from them. Like it's a little bit more than that. Um, And perhaps maybe would you say people are looking at trust, whether it's in that trusted security advisor or just generally speaking, they are looking at it very clinically and not like looking at it for like the long-term impacts and knowing that it is a bit of a process it's not just like um I don't know being very uh basic and saying oh hey Marilise how are you you want to go for a coffee it's sort of there's a little bit more to it than that so do you think that perhaps people's interpretation of how to build trust is perhaps not right I think I think as human beings we are we are very I think it's just natural to think about our own needs first. And I think, you know, we can be quite selfish (laughs) creatures. Um, And, you know, we can get so consumed in our own needs and our own problems that sometimes, you know, you, you don't really put yourself in the shoes of the other individual. And I think that, that I think is something I see a lot. Um, And so the moment I think you you start putting yourself into someone else's shoes, I think it it really helps to open your mind to that fact that you know I've got to really work, and and it's that reciprocal thing again. You know I don't I, I don't because because I come from an environment and, and and conditioning where I used to be a people pleaser, so I would I would give so much of myself to other people at my own detriment and I, and I don't want that either you know so yes I was loved and trusted by so many people but at the end of the day I wasn't actually loved and trusted by myself like I didn't actually love and trust myself because I was feeling 
empty and I felt, you know, tired and I just kept giving, 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 you know. So I think at the end of the day, it's understanding that dynamic with yourself, but also um, if you're able to put yourself into someone else's shoes, how you're able to actually make sense of things better. Yeah, wow. That's um, Thank you for sharing that vulnerable piece of information because that that's not an easy thing to say. Uh, I think many people can relate to that. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's not an easy pill to swallow. So I really appreciate you sharing a part of your story. The last question I sort of want to close with today is you mentioned high challenge, high support. What do you mean by this? And then how does that apply to our leaders today? So that that is actually a beautiful um, a beautiful framework um, as well. So it's basically using challenge and support in equal and powerful combinations. So high challenge, high support. Now, where where you typically get big problems is when you have high challenge and low support. So that's typically where you get sort of your toxic environments where there's massive challenge the whole time, but people don't feel the necessary, feel the support. Um, And equally, when there's low challenge um, and high support, there can be a sense of apathy, you know. So there is that sort of beautiful balance where you have high challenge, high support, where you are using support and challenge and in equal and powerful combination, which really just helps people because people want to have that validation and they want to know if they're doing a good job. But they also want to be able to feel safe to make mistakes and they want to feel safe that the leaders watch their back. So we call that psychological safety, right? Um, so I think it's just recognizing that people people need that challenge because it is important to create a high-performing culture. But at the same time with that challenge, we have to give people the, the necessary support as leaders. Particularly, we have a massive responsibility to give people that support. But but the moment you you fling to either side, either higher challenge or higher support, it, it actually can become a problem. And I think that is really a beautiful balance to be able to strike as a leader. High challenge, high support in equal and powerful combination. I love that. I think that's awesome. I think no one no one really wants to go out on, on a limb, uh, but if they have that support, they've got that safety net, they know that they're not going to be sort of scolded or they're not going to be spoken down to because they made a mistake. I think that that is a wonderful thing to engender into any culture, into any organisation to feel supported. Uh, I wish I had more of that uh, a lot earlier in my career. I, don't, I can't say that I had a lot of that. Uh, and so I guess I just ran the risk and I took the risk myself. Um, so I like to hope that, you know, with, even with my staff that I like to support them because I, I do know what it feels like to not have that support. So I genuinely do appreciate that methodology or philosophy because there hasn't probably been enough of that type of support wrapped around by leaders or even just staff So I really appreciate you sharing that and also making this more of a reality for people that if they're listening, they can embrace this type of culture for their team and their staff. So really, really loved this uh, interview with with you today, Marilise. I think it was real. It was raw. I think it was honest. 
and I think it's exactly what the industry needs. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today, getting up early and sharing your thoughts and sharing your wisdom. You are so welcome and thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.